Welcome to the NCEA podcast. I'm your host today, Colleen McCoy-Sika, and I'm the Director of Professional Learning for NCEA. Redeker Software is excited to sponsor today's podcast, Supporting School Leaders. Redeker Software is honored to support NCEA and the mission of strengthening Catholic school communities. Serving Catholic school leaders, educators, and families for over 40 years, Redeker Software provides software and technology solutions for school management, admissions, and secure mobile-ready school-to-home communication. We understand the unique student information management needs of Catholic schools and offer experience, reliability, and great service and support. Visit www.redeker.com or come see us in person at the NCEA convention in New Orleans this April. My guest today on the podcast is Dr. Dan McMahon, and he's principal of DeMatha Catholic High School in Maryland. And this is someone for whom leadership is really a labor of love and service, which you'll learn as he tells his story. Dan actually came onto my radar as I was reviewing proposals for the NCEA 2022 convention. And his session entitled 21 Practices for Catholic School Leaders jumped out at me and prompted a conversation that actually led to this podcast. So he's here today just to give us a preview of his topic and his session that will be in the On Demand Library. So thank you so much for joining me today and welcome to the podcast, Dr. Dan McMahon. Thanks so much, Colleen. I'm delighted to be with you uh, today. I'm happy to tell you a little bit about how I got to be here. I went to DeMatha Catholic High School and uh, started there in 1972 as a freshman. And after I graduated, I went to a small Catholic liberal arts college in Emmitsburg, Maryland, Mount St. Mary's, Cradle of Bishops. And I went to Notre Dame to begin graduate school, but I wanted to come back and get married. And when I did, I came back and also began teaching at DeMatha. And I taught there the next 16 years. I was away for three years and I came back and I've been the principal and I've been teaching uh, all of the years since uh, 2000. A couple of amazing things about uh, DeMatha, I think, are that in the past uh, 53 years, we've only had two principals. Uh, the principal who I replaced was my principal when I was a student, and then all the time that I was uh, I was a faculty member. So, um, I yeah, it's a great uh, great story, and it talks a little bit about how people uh, stay uh, because of the culture, I think. Yeah, that's fantastic. So, and then, so do you have family members? Like how, how deeply rooted are you in the community? <laughs> that's a great question. Yes, uh, I have said that um, my wife, Donna, we're an all boys school, so no girls, but my wife has uh, opened um, her heart on every occasion and our home on numerous occasions to, to DeMatha. And we're fortunate. Our son graduated from DeMatha and I have two son-in-laws who are DeMatha grads. So uh, it's really a wonderful, uh, a complete family experience uh, for, uh, for everyone. Having to replace your own principal, that had to be an interesting experience. What did that feel like and how were you welcomed? Uh, he was terrific. Uh, John Moylan was his name. He was a real giant in Catholic education and uh, he just passed away a year ago. But 
Um, he was uh, very helpful to me, and particularly Colleen, I think his generosity showed in the fact that as a faculty member, I'm not sure I was particularly easy to get along with. And uh, I've often thought of his uh, generosity to me as a teacher as a good example for me to be generous to uh, the next uh, set of people who are uh, calling into question decisions that you make and uh, the like. But uh, we both shared a profound love of the school and and its mission and uh, and how that got implemented was really the only time we we disagreed, and I think that's a great place for people to disagree. Is uh, is how best do we get to where we want to go? Absolutely, absolutely. Oh, that's fantastic! That what an what an exciting, what an unusual and exciting experience for you. That's great. So, okay, so you um, you came through, you know, traditional education route. So you were a teacher, and then yeah, and you came into the principal role. So. Um, what what would you say then? What were the the most formative professional experiences that you had um, that prepared you to be a principal? Um, yeah, I, I guess besides your formal education, I'm fortunate. I I had quite. I have a few. Uh, one of them is that uh, John Moylan did make me a department chair in my fifth year, so I was very young and got a chance to uh, participate in hiring. Uh, you know, minimal amounts of budgeting, the kinds of things that Catholic school uh, principals and Catholic school leaders have to have to do. So that was uh, important. I'm also uh, I was a coach for five years uh, in uh, the athletic program, and um, I was able to do things like uh, work in the bookstore and um, participate in uh, campus ministry. Uh, so all of those were really influential. But another really important and influential part was. At the very beginning, I, uh, my wife and I didn't have any kids at the time, and uh, we needed to make um, extra money. And I worked as a janitor in a local Catholic elementary school uh, over the uh, course of the year. I would leave here, I'd leave to Matha and go uh, pack up, go to the school, and work for two to three hours uh, doing the things that janitors do, cleaning bathrooms and uh, taking care of offices and classrooms and emptying trash and and the like. And uh, that was a really formative experience for me. It was important um, to to see how a school works from the facility up, from the ground up, and to realize how important your surroundings are. And incidentally, how important taking care of all of those people are. Uh, for the most part, I was treated extremely uh, well by the uh, people who hosted the buildings that I that I worked in, but there were people who regarded me as invisible, and um, I have tried, as principal, to recognize uh, what I call an expansive definition of who the teachers are. I really believe that every interaction a student has is a teaching opportunity, and that means if the student interacts with my administrative assistant or with our maintenance staff um, or with cafeteria workers. Every one of those is a teaching opportunity, and every one of those people is teaching by the way that they model how they, how they act. I think that's a really, it was a great lesson for me, just terrific. I bet you are just, you know, in, in my intro of you, and I said that your leadership is a labor of love and service. This is, ex this is exactly why, because that experience taught you about really, you know, how 
how you treat all of the people within the community that, you know, who, who really has the impact on the students. It really is everyone that's modeling the mission in the whole building. And, and the janitors know everything and they see everything and <laughs> you have to treat them well. <laughs> yes, you're exactly right. And we, we ask all of our faculty to perform a duty during, during the day. And I always take cafeteria duty and, you know, you wipe down a lot of tables, you clear a lot of trash, you, but you talk to a ton of kids. And when you do that, you interact with them and they begin to do things themselves and you ask them to do things. And uh, it really, it, you're, you're quite right. In a way, what you're doing is you're establishing and creating a culture and culture is uh, so, is, is the critical thing that Catholic schools create. So as part of convention, you've been putting together this on-demand session for us on the, the top practices and habits for leaders. And so um, clearly you've had some really amazing leadership experiences, but can you talk a little bit more about um, where, where did these practices and habits come from? Are these from your experiences or are these all research-based? Right. So I think that the best answer is that they come from both. I, I began to think early when I was a principal that uh, teachers were should more think of themselves as leaders rather than pedagogues. And the, the, the real distinction I make is that the leader is engaged in the act of doing whatever it is that needs to be done with the people who are going along with them. I sometimes say that uh, real leadership is in a way being a Sherpa for for other people. You, you're you willing to set up the base camp, you're willing to carry the equipment, you're willing to uh, help them acclimatize, you're willing to do all of those things, but finally it's going to be their journey and that the best teachers do this. And I wanted to be the kind of principal that practiced that form of leadership. So I began thinking about uh, and I enrolled at Creighton to study leadership in particular. In fact, one of the sort of ironies is my advanced degrees are actually all in English and philosophy. And my dissertation is in uh, the history of utopias and utopian thinking. And um, if you ask the people uh, at DeMatha, they probably would assure you I have not managed to create utopia yet. Uh, it's, uh, uh, but it's still an aspiration, right, if I can create this uh, system. Anyway, so I began reading around, and I would say there's three pretty influential philosophical uh, people, and that, that would be uh, Chris Lowney, who uh, wrote a really important book about uh, servant leadership uh, and the history of the Jesuits and how they approached it. And um, then I uh, studied uh, Jim Collins's work, and uh, Jim is famous for a good to great, and he has a couple of really important ideas that I think. Uh, one is that uh, people work better than systems, so though it's important to have good systems, what you really need are great people, and then you need to get them in the place that they can, they can do the work. And the other influential theorist on leadership that I uh, came under the sway of is a guy named James McGregor Burns, who's probably most famous for his distinction between transactional leadership and transformational leadership. And Burns makes this distinction that uh, transactional leadership is a lot more like uh, going to your bank and exchanging money back and forth. Nobody is completely 
invested in that relationship. You're there to do something and then get out, like a maybe a contractor at a at a job. But transformational leadership means you are deeply engaged with the people that you are that you're working with, and I I I, I think that's that's the leadership that I aspire to. I think it's the leadership everybody in a classroom should aspire to is uh, transformational leadership. And so those three theoretical things, along with my classroom teaching and my work as I uh, began to be a principal, uh, sort of coalesced around a constellation of activities that I think reinforce culture through habit. And um, that's what I hope to share with, with people. Right. Great. Well, then let's jump in. Can you, like I, you know, like I said, it's just going to be a preview because we want everyone to watch your full, <laughs> your full session. It'll be great. But give us a preview. What are some of the the top habits and practices that you think leaders should know and practice? So I think some of that is involving um, solving a problem or maybe recognizing, even if it's not actually a problem, but it's that a thing that requires a sort of um, a sort of response. So I'll, I'll give you a couple of uh, examples. In any high school, at least, there are people who write way more letters of recommendation than, than others. And this is because sometimes you have to have an English teacher or a math teacher write, or you have teachers who are more uh, popular that are asked to, to do this. And this is a form of service to the student, and it's also a form of service to the school. The school looks good for every really well done letter that's written. But, so that makes an unequal distribution of work. Um, But I don't think it's fair to pay people to write letters of recommendation. The last thing you want is to incentivize people going to kids and saying, hey, you know, let me write on your behalf. But if you don't recognize the uh, extra work that people are doing, that itself is is an issue. So a way that we have solved that is that uh, I get the list of all the people who've written letters and uh, how many have been written throughout the year. And then I go to our alumni association and I ask our alumni association to send gift cards to those people who have distinguished themselves over and above. And it's a great opportunity for the alumni association to recognize what was done for them by people when they were here and at the same time it i it does allow us to recognize those people who have spent that additional time and that additional amount of work i think that's a and that's a practice that can often be implemented at a relatively low um low cost some of these are some of the things i'm going to talk about in the big session are no cost and some of them have a small cost to them and I'll be really clear about um, about that Um, but that's one I particularly like that's a great suggestion and and what great recognition for that really is just a service that that teachers usually provide so great thank you Um, speaking of recognition I think that's another important thing that uh, that you should do and this it can be delicate, and you have to uh, be really careful about the way that you that you do it. But it, it should become a cultural norm and a cultural expectation. And that is, I apply on behalf of the school for every teaching award that comes up. I nominate people at 
Aftermath. And that, uh, sometimes they win those awards. We've had people recognized by Radio Shack and the Washington Post and um, Annapolis Magazine and uh, the American Chemical Society and uh, the Veterans of Foreign Wars. Anything that comes across my desk, I nominate people for. And even if they don't, uh, even if they're not recognized by an outside organization, I think that the act of gathering the material, of asking colleagues to write on people's behalf, that itself is a way of recognizing other people's strengths. And as you know, having worked in schools, uh, teaching, though you're surrounded by people, is a fundamentally lonely job. You're not surrounded by adults. You're surrounded by children who can't actually recognize what you're what you're doing. So asking colleagues to write on people's behalf to do this, I think that there's a way to build that. And I, I mean, I'll be candid. I've had sometimes other school leaders have said, I'd be afraid that I would have some faculty who are jealous of, uh, of, of the people who get nominated. And I said, you know, if it becomes a cultural habit, everybody aspires to this and everybody can celebrate everybody else's. Uh, strengths. Um, I also think, you know, uh, school leaders can't do everything themselves, and they really shouldn't be expected to. And about uh, close to 20 years ago, I decided to begin inviting my colleagues at the other Catholic high schools in the Washington Archdiocese, so there's 17 of us, to breakfast with me over the summers and each year for all those years I meet with everybody for breakfast for an individual breakfast and the thing I like about that is it gives me a chance to hear from them to hear about the missions of their school to find out what they're thinking about to borrow ideas frankly from uh, from them and to let them share things that I'm thinking about as a school leader and often you find you're wrestling with very much the same kinds of of issues. The other thing that that is a benefit is you know how if things go wrong in a dance or students don't behave well at a game or in a parking lot or something and I have to call somebody or I have to be on the other end of a call uh, from somebody saying hey your kids did did this. If you have a personal relationship with those people it goes a lot longer than if you don't, if you just cold call somebody and say, hey, your kid did this in the parking lot or uh, whatever it is. So I find that creating that network is really, a, a, an imp a, I know that that's a time consuming uh, thing, but it, it, that has been one of the real joys. I look forward to that every summer and uh, get people on the calendar and we meet at a diner uh, in, uh, that's in a common place for the uh, two of us and have breakfast together and just talk and that I have found that to be a really helpful uh, really helpful enterprise. It also is the kind of thing that can be taken inside the school. I do try throughout the year um, I have uh, well I have two assistant principals now I had one for a long time but I have a director of guidance and dean of students and department chairs and lots of times uh, I will go to one of them and say, hey, Don, let's walk down to Subway and have lunch together, right? Just 45 minutes, you know, one-on-one -on -one time 
chance to check in with people, take their temperatures, find out what they're thinking about. For the 12-month employees, you can that it's easy enough to do during the during the summer, but hearing from people at that granular level is really I'm not sure there's anything uh, that can replace that. And there's the kind of things that you need to create opportunities for those things to happen, uh, I think. So you are talking about creating a culture of collaboration. And it's not just culture, but you're also measuring the the climate of the school through those interactions. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. So I think one of the things that I'm going to uh, talk about in the, the longer version is about the creation of culture and then all the things that the practices are strategies to adopt, uh, to en enhance the culture. And uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll make that distinction considerably uh, more clearly. But in general, strategy can be changed quickly. You can change your strategy for almost anything. Culture is long-term and is really deep and is mission-driven. And I think that that's why establishing the culture and then finding strategies to to do that. And incidentally, everybody's strategy is going to be different. Uh, we have a wonderful president, uh, uh, Father James, and he has a beautiful singing voice. And so part of the way he participates with kids is when we have uh, our what we call our kaleidoscope concert is uh, he sings with and being backed up by the jazz ensemble. And that is his way of experiencing, interacting with the the kids and the like. I, I get to be in the classroom and for years I was able to uh, to bring my dog to campus and the chance to walk a dog on campus, uh, I cannot tell you how many kids stop you and say, what's the dog's name? What is, you know, can I walk with? And that gives me a chance to say, hey, run down a Monday schedule for me. Tell me, how do you like algebra, right? Who's your teacher? I, the In a way, you're constantly looking for a passport to talk to people so that you can learn about them. And that's a strategy, but my strategy of walking the dog is different than father's strategy of singing with the jazz ensemble, which might be different from um, the person uh, who takes the kids to a museum on a field trip or the strategy of a teacher who's working in a lab with kids. What you, but the culture has to remain the same, right? This building of relationships and this building of this larger community. That's the cultural aspect. Yeah, I used to love going on field trips. When I was principal, I used to love going on field trips with the kids. I did that. I did that a lot. And I also, because I have a music background as well, I also used to play sometimes uh, for, yeah, for concerts and things. And I, I did um, a recital one year, just a, you know, a, a recital and showed pictures from my summer vacation. And I, I love that. And when you take a piece of yourself, something that you're interested in, or or your dog, a member of your family, and you you bring that and it and it humanizes you with with your students and your faculty too. That's great. I, I I love going on service trips with uh, with kids. I'm still uh, able to participate, and so uh, about three years or so ago, I got a chance to take a, uh, kids for a week to uh, Nazareth Farm, uh, which you live on a working farm and you help people in the neighborhood. And um, I did one in uh, Tijuana for a week with kids, and those sorts of things allow you to know kids in a really deep, and in a way, they're there are residual benefits. Uh, those kids come back and they 
say, oh, hey, you know, Dr. McMahon's not crazy, right? I mean, he was helping me, you know, move, dig post holes. He was helping me do whatever it is. And so you're right. I think that that the sharing of your gifts and the observing of their gifts is really, uh, that's the culture, right? And then strategies can happen a lot of different ways, but the culture's the thing. That's great. Okay. What else? How about, how about maybe, maybe two or three more? Sure. So, uh, here's one that I think is, um, uh, is important building. I'll, I'll give you a, at least one more building outside and then building inside. So building outside, uh, culture is, uh, I, thought that it might be interesting since we're a high school and we have about kids come from about a hundred middle schools to to the math and we have to forge them into a single single unit so i wanted to know a little bit about those middle school teachers so what we have been doing uh, for the past several years is we run free middle school workshops for language arts teachers, for math teachers, and for science teachers. And it allows a group of middle school teachers to come to the school. They get presentations, sometimes by our faculty, sometimes by people we bring in from other places. Gives them a chance to interact and talk with each other. And it allows us to hear what they're thinking about as the students begin to head towards high school and make decisions and uh, like that. So that's a, another example of sort of outreach to the community. E every educator has the obligation as they gain more experience to share what they have learned because early in our careers, we are the disproportionate beneficiaries of our other, of colleagues' experience. And once you have that experience, it's your obligation to help other people along the along the way so that's a that's one thing that i really like doing and it allows me to meet a lot of people and talk with uh with fellow teaching um with teaching colleagues one of the things that i like doing inside the school is we run uh what's called a serfois summer seminar serfois is a place in france where the trinitarian order that uh, owns and operates the school uh, was founded and what we do is each year in February, uh, faculty members propose to teach a seminar class over the summer to other faculty members. And uh, we select one and usually about 20 people gather five different times for three hours at, at a time. And they study whatever it is that is being uh, presented. And sometimes that is something that might benefit you directly, but sometimes it's something that adds to what I call the invisible architecture of your own of your own teaching. Um, I'm not going to start teaching math at this point in my career, but we had a teacher do one on the history of mathematics, and it was awesome and great. And here's the thing, we pay the person who does the uh, teaching, but we pay every participant too. So it, it's an interior form of bill and you meet with people from all different departments in ways that you ordinarily don't get to to do in a school so uh, again this sort of relentless uh commitment to knowing each other well and deeply to recognizing each other's strengths to participating with each other to celebrating each other's victories and as you know in any community if you do it well uh, your victories get amplified by being brought together, but your sorrows get diluted. And that's so when you have grief, when you have inevitable passings and things like that, 
that being able to share those things is diminishes uh, that terrible burden that you'd feel you're carrying it yourself. And um, I've been very lucky. I've, I've worked with tremendous colleagues and a lot of this I've sort of learned from, from them. You know, I, I've been speaking with so many school leaders lately and um, the schools with the strong, well-established culture where the relationships were already built and where um, the leadership was really in tune with the climate of the school, those are the schools where the collective burden of the last year or two has been um, carried together. It, you know, it just seems like, just like you just said, when, when challenges occur, when difficulties occur, when grief occurs, you can carry that collectively a little bit easier. I think you're absolutely right about that. And I'll, I'll share just one more uh, thing that we, that we do that I really like. Uh, we, on administrative team retreat every year in August, we go away for two days. And when I say administrative team retreat, I'm taking 40 people with me on retreat, not just six or seven. So I take all the department chairs, anybody who heads an organization or club that's significant in the school, has a lot of participants, uh, the assistant principals, the advancement director, the admissions director, all of these people come. And a few years ago, a colleague of mine said, you know, we should have a couple of what we call wild cards. That is, we just invite a couple of really young junior faculty members to come because I think part of the obligation of leadership is to make sure that when it is your time to step aside, that you have also brought a lot of other people along with you. And by having all of these people to kick off the year together, to pray together, to uh, be together and talk about what the year is going to look like, that um, I don't think you should spare any expense in doing that kind of thing. And so uh, I'm going to talk a lot more about admin team retreat and I'll share agendas and things like that with everyone uh, when we when we meet virtually. Great, great. Well, thank you so much. These are all great suggestions. And, and you know, like I said, this is kind of tip of the iceberg um, for what you'll share in, in the full session. So, so grateful for for your time and for you sharing these suggestions with other leaders throughout the country. I gotta tell you, you know, I'm, I've been taking notes as we're talking and I think my favorite takeaway from our conversation here, because I, I'm studying leadership as well. So, you know, oh, as you're great. talking about, <laughs> as you're talking about the different theorists and, you know, the different ways of thinking about leadership, I think that Doc, you heard it here first. Dr. Dan McMahon has coined the term Sherpa leadership, and I think it's going to be the next big thing. I think it's the next big thing. Yep. Uh, Colleen, thank you so much. You're so generous. So I want to thank my guest uh, today, Dr. Dan McMahon, for joining me. And I want to thank our listeners for uh, for taking the time to uh, to learn a little bit today about leadership and to our partner and sponsor, Redeker, uh, for another successful NCEA podcast. Hopefully you will tune in again next time. A new podcast drops every Thursday. So tune in again next time. Thank you, Dan, for joining me. Hope you have a great day. Thanks so much, Colleen. Bye now. <laughs>